0: This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we see the religious leadership of both Pharisees and Sadducees attempting to trap Jesus with a series of testing questions and witness the rabbinical brilliance of Jesus as a Jewish teacher. So apparently in the midst of this storytelling, like Jesus spends this
1: week going on the offensive, Uh, now the religious leaders decide, after being kind of confronted, Jesus goes after all this religious corruption. They decide it's their turn. They're going to go on the offensive. Now, throughout the course of these stories here, we're going to bump into something that's really unusual. The text tells us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, at different points in this journey, are going to work together, which is unheard of. Like, on some level, you can't even believe it. Like, the most likely explanation for this is there are some Pharisees who work together with the Sadducees. Because Pharisees and Sadducees, we've already looked at the two groups, are diametrically opposed. They hate each other. Um, Now, we know there were corrupt Pharisees on things like the Sanhedrin. There are corrupt Pharisees. There are corrupt Pharisees. So they exist. It's not the norm, but they were out there. And whether it's those corrupt Pharisees that are working with the Sadducees or whether it's um, just uh, a, a slim portion of Pharisees that see things, they sympathize with the Sadducees, or whether it's their hatred of Jesus that draws them together. But this idea of the Pharisees and the Sadducees working together, that's a big deal. Um, They are wanting to try and trap Jesus pretty, they're wanting to try pretty hard to do this if they're willing to work together to get it done. Um, And they're trying to remove Jesus from his place of cultural influence. Um, So one of the great Jewish debates, we've already talked about the great debates, right, of Jesus' day, Brent, we've talked about the eight great debates. One of the great debates was a debate that swirled about paying taxes. These great debates were fueled in large part by two rabbinic voices. Who were they, Brent? Tell me. Uh, Hillel and Shammai. Hillel and Shammai. So to understand the context of these two rabbinical schools is to have a much clearer perspective on the Jewish world of Jesus. And we've already talked about it, but it's always worth reviewing as we go through Uh, In the rabbinical generation that preceded Jesus, there were two rabbis who argued vehemently about the great Jewish debates. As we've seen, there was a conservative rabbi who held an interpretation of the law driven by the priorities of obedience. Who was that, Brent? Which one? Obedience is Shammai. Shammai is the obedience lens. The obedience yoke is the word we've used before. On the other corner was a rabbi who held to a much more progressive interpretation revolving around love for one's neighbor. And that What was his name, Brent? Hillel. Hillel. These two worldviews competed passionately over the interpretation of the law and matters of great debate. Nevertheless, in order to understand the context of the debate about taxes, we need to first point out the real issue isn't about taxes at all. Now, remember, we're reading of which gospel, Brent? Matthew. Matthew. I think Matthew was probably not written in Greek, so that's my own personal opinion. But I always feel like it's the worst gospel to go to if you want to look at the actual words that are being chosen in the Greek, because I don't think Matthew is the one that actually chose the words. I think Matthew wrote it in Hebrew. Nevertheless, I love to go to Luke. And Luke doesn't use the same word here, which, again, I feel like is an indication that something fishy is up in Matthew's Greek. But nevertheless... Luke uses the word in Greek called kinsas. Now, kinsas doesn't speak of of taxes. There is a word to use in Greek for taxes. Luke uses it elsewhere. But the word he uses in this parallel story is the word kinsas. The King James translates this accurately as tribute. Should we pay tribute to Caesar, not taxes? The debate isn't about paying taxes as you and I would be familiar with paying taxes. In fact, the tribute they speak of was a particular coin. We have a presentation today, Brent. It's been a while since we put together a little presentation. But you have a picture in there of the tribute coin of that same time period, I believe. I believe it's a Tiberius tribute coin. And that would have been the same coin used in the days of Jesus. There's a tribute coin, a particular coin that every resident in the Roman world was expected to purchase. So you buy the coin, and then this tribute coin could be used as a receipt that proved you had paid tribute to Caesar and to Rome. Upon validation of this receipt, you could be given incense at any number of different outposts where tribute was paid. You would offer the incense and your worship to Caesar. Now, we also have at least a picture, maybe two or three or more, but we have a picture of a place called Omrit as a place that we go with uh, on our trips with our disciples And Omrit is one of three tribute temples that we know of that was built by Herod the Great. Herod the Great built three temples to collect this tribute, not taxes, but this tribute for Caesar. It was was an act of worship and of devotion. And so you would take this tribute coin that you would buy, you would take it to one of these temples, or we imagine probably other places as well throughout the empire. But this coin would then um, they would give you a little pinch of incense. You would take the incense and you would offer your your pledge, your worship, your devotion to Caesar on the altar, the incense altar. It should be worth noting that we have uncovered one of three tribute temples constructed by Herod the Great, less than two miles from Caesarea Philippi. Sounds familiar? Where was that, Brent? Caesarea Philippi. Uh, where was it? Yeah, like where Where'd we run into that? I feel like we've heard of Caesarea Philippi. Oh, the gates of hell story. The gates of hell, right? The disciples have recently been... At Caesarea Philippi, before Jesus set his course towards Jerusalem. Now, understanding this context helps us understand the question being debated. It's not about paying money, the question is about idolatry. Realize that amongst the differing Jewish responses we have looked at before, there would have been differing opinions. So, the question is the great Jewish debate is do I pay tribute to Caesar? Do I get this coin? Now, let's go through the different groups, Brent. Let's start with the Herodians. Tell me what the Herodians, what do you think the Herodians would have said about, uh, if I would have said, hey, Herodian, do you you get the tribute coin? And by the way, let's go ahead and set, before we even get into this, let's set the stage for this. Go ahead and read us, give us
0: the address and read us the first portion of the story before we even get into that question. So Matthew 22, starting in verse 15, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Okay, now wait a minute. The Pharisees
1: are sending their disciples with who? The Herodians. Now, are the Pharisees and the Herodians good buddies? Not particularly. No, they're like, they represent the two opposite ends of the spectrum. Remember, the Pharisees were a part of which group, Brent? They were part of the Hasidim. The Hasidim. They had separated from the They couldn't believe the compromise of the Herodians. They had separated themselves and they're going together because they're trying to trap Jesus. With this whole issue of the debate about the tribute coin, no matter who what Jesus says, he's going to make one of the groups upset, and they're going to have to reject him because whatever he says, he's trapped. He's got to, he's got to disagree with somebody. Right? He has to, at least, so they think. Go ahead and give us the next
0: few verses. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? All right. And there's that horrible
1: translation in Matthew. Imperial tax. And, and at least... note
0: the uh or the footnote in the NIV says, a special tax levied on subject peoples, not on Roman citizens, which is uh, it's it The NIV
1: is getting, and there is a discussion that uh, they can find scholarship to to go that direction. So at least they're getting better. They're getting better in there. Uh, translation over time. So that's this is a good thing. We will applaud that. But the word here out of Luke that we want to focus on is this idea of tribute and kensos. So if we would have said to the one of those Herodians that's standing there, they were the ones that came and brought the question, at least one of them,
0: what, what would they say, Brent? Herodians are going to say, yeah, you, you pay it. Like, it's just part of the world we live in and, you know, it is what it is. It's fine. Yep, it is what it is.
1: And uh, God knows what's in your heart, right? God knows what's in your heart. If you pay the... You don't wanna not be patriotic. Grab the coin. Do the thing. Go through the motions. Like of course. We're good. We love Rome, right? Okay. What about um what about the what about the Sadducees? What are they gonna say? Sadducees, should we get the coin?
0: Oh the Sadducees uh, are probably selling the coins and keeping the money. <laughs>
1: probably <a>
0: good point. <laughs> yeah they're definitely gonna say oh you need a you need a coin oh well you're gonna have to go all the way back to town but i have one right here yeah 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 for twice the price (laughs) yeah yeah uh
1: yeah they're gonna say of course um do you don't you know what rome gives us like uh, we don't make the romans angry we've worked pretty hard to get this whole political feng shui figured out like come on don't don't tick them off get the coin of course get the coin uh what are the Essenes gonna say uh, absolutely not. Well, of course. And they're not even going to have to worry about it. Get me out of here. Yeah,
0: they're going to be in the desert anyway. They're like, I don't have to worry about tribute. I'm hanging out at Qumran. What if the Zealots? Uh, the Zealots will buy it, and then as as you're handing it to them, they <laughs> stab you in the back with their knife. <laughs> I was like,
1: what? Where are they <laughs> surprising me with your answers here. I'm like, no, Brent, no. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the Pharisees are also going to say, like, anybody who who offers tributes deserves to die. So all these groups are going to respond differently to this type of tribute kind. One group's going to say, of course, why not? The other group's going to say, do it and I kill you. Um, And the one group we're missing, what group are we missing? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. They're going to have an issue because the Pharisees are going to be split over those two schools. Who are the two rabbis, Brent? Hillel and Shammai. Hillel and Shammai. They were split on the issue, depending on whether they held the Shammai or Hillel's interpretations. Shammai Pharisees would have claimed that this is an issue of idolatry and obedience demands we are not to purchase the coin. However, Hillel had a much different interpretation, pointing to the book of Jeremiah and showing that God says he was using Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most brutal tyrants in human history. God said to Jeremiah, um, he said, uh, the whole earth is mine and I give it to Nebuchadnezzar, is what God said in Jeremiah. Uh, His will, Nebuchadnezzar was doing God's will, and the kingdom was being given to him. Hillel then said that the ruling authorities, whoever they are, including Rome, would be put in place by God. Therefore, when one buys the tribute coin, they are not taking part in idolatry, but simply giving back to the ruler what God has decided in his sovereign will to give him in the first place. So Hillel's position was, God gave this nation to Rome. So when you buy the tribute coin, you're simply giving back to Rome, giving back, give back to Rome what God's already given them. You're not actually engaging in idolatry. So notice the trap they set for Jesus. They sent the disciples to him along with the Herodians. In this sole mention of the Herodians, it is pointed out that they are conspiring along with the Hasidim, the very people who have an opposing worldview. They're setting Jesus up for failure. No matter how he answers, he's going to make one of the groups angry. He's either going to look like a compromising idolater, or he's going to lose favor with the people. But Jesus is a brilliant teacher.
0: Go ahead and keep reading, Brent. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. I love this move.
1: Because where is he standing according to the context, Brent? We have to look at the other gospels to kind of figure this out. But where is he at? He's in the temple, right? He's on the temple mount. Now you're not allowed. Why are all the money changers in the temple mount, Brent? Because you can't take Roman money into the temple. You can't have Roman money on the temple. So this is like somebody asking, like asking a teacher about pornography and he says, well, somebody show me a Playboy and you pull a Playboy out of your back pocket. It'd be like we don't know where the, where the rabbi stands on the issue, but we definitely know where you stand on the issue. So he says, somebody give me a coin. So somebody digs out a coin, hands it to him. And I picture Jesus like reaching out, kind of like winking at them, kind of like not winking as not it's okay. But well, we know where you stand now. Thank you very much. Thank you for giving me the coin. And, and so the whole thing ends up being pretty interesting because you've now shown the teacher where you fall on the argument, but he still hasn't told you anything about his own opinion. So we would assume that one of the Herodians produced the coin, but still, that's funny. So Jesus wants to know two things. What does he ask, Brent? They brought him a
0: denarius and he asked them. Who's... A horrible translation. wasn't a denarius, a tribute coin. Sure. Yeah. And, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? All right. Two things. Whose image
1: and whose inscription? Now, the image will be of Caesar, and you can look on that picture to see the, de- the depiction of that. The inscription is going to speak of the divinity and worship of Caesar as a divine god. We've, with, um, almost without exception, every tribute coin that we've ever found, and really any coin in general, almost without exception, speaks of the divinity of Caesar in the Palestinian region. The, the divine son, um, the worshiped son of a worshiped God is one of the most common phrases on a tribute coin. I have a, tri- I have a different coin. I have a Roman coin down in my desk, and it has a Caesar, son of divine, most high God on,
0: on that coin. So uh, the people answer, well, go ahead and keep reading. Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. So the people answer, it's Caesar's
1: inscription. But the implication here is an unspoken question. That's whose image and inscription is on the coin, whose image and whose inscription is on you. In a stunning moment fit for a poetry slam, Jesus declares, give to Caesar, but he doesn't say give to Caesar. What did the old King James say, Brent? Can you remember? Well, it says give back. It says render. Oh, does Matthew say... Give back. Does the new NIV say give back? Yeah. Beautiful. The old King James used to say render. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to God what is God's. And that term render meant to give back. That is the appropriate translation. What what position did he just take there? Uh the Hillel position. The Hillel position. But the one thing that Jesus does is Hillel was always strangely silent on Hillel said buy the coin. But you never but Hillel never said use the coin or don't use the coin. He was just silent on the use of the coin. He simply said, Buy the coin. Jesus takes it one step further. And he says, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God's what is God's. In other words, Jesus says, Give Caesar his stupid coin, but don't you ever give him your worship. He takes it further than he he explicitly states give him his stupid coin, but don't you dare give him your worship. And he mic drops. And in that moment, every group, every group is challenged by his words. The Herodians, the Shammai Pharisees, the Hillel Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes aren't around to hear him. Everybody's challenged by these words. Everybody somewhat likes what he just said, but everybody also goes, ooh, because whatever he just said challenged every single group. It's brilliant. How did he get out of that trap? He found a way to answer the question in a way that challenged every single group there. It's absolutely stunningly brilliant. It challenges us as well. It challenges us to consider the things we pledge allegiance to. It challenges us to consider the things that become the object of our hope and our worship. It challenges us to wonder whether there can be another empire other than God's. All right, Brent, let's see if we me move on to the next story, unless you got any thoughts on that one before we move on.
0: Oh, I think that's it. All right, good. Let's, let's keep moving then, shall we? <laughs> that felt like a full episode right there. Absolutely. <laughs> but we've got a lot more to cover. we got a lot more to cover. All right. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question.
1: All right, let's deal with that. Say there is no resurrection. That's... <sighs> That is hard to understand as Western Christians. We, we kind of misunderstand that. It's not that the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection like we understand resurrection in the Christian world. They did not believe in the same bodily resurrection that the Pharisees believed in. The Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection in the world to come where the Son of Man would come make everything. He would set everything right. And there would be a bodily resurrection in, Chaba, in the world to come, the age to come. The Sadducees believed in a more spiritual resurrection that would happen, however, but they didn't have the same Pharisaical worldview. So it's not that the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection at all or no afterlife or nothing like that. So they didn't believe in a bodily, earthly kingdom resurrection. And really, the Pharisees didn't believe in the resurrection like we understand resurrection. We don't really have the same idea of resurrection that the Pharisees or maybe even we'll have to dig this apart some more later, but Jesus and his disciples, like we have a different kind of idea influenced by lots of medieval theology when it comes to how we understand resurrection, so um that that idea uh that they didn't believe in the resurrection is one that we need to like fine tune just a little bit, but they're they're gonna take this, Jesus being more pharisaical in his methods, more. Um, even if he's influenced by Essenes, very eschatological. The Sadducees are going to try to confront the inaccuracy, the, the illogical nature of his
0: theology. So go ahead. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? So they just kind of confront him with a logical conundrum. They're like, "This whole
1: idea of a bodily resurrection in the age to come just doesn't work." Because what if you have these multiple marriages? Then what happens when everybody's resurrected? Go ahead and
0: go ahead and see what Jesus answers. Jesus replied, "You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God." At the resurrection, Ouch. yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> pretty straightforward. Uh, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching.
1: Right. So Jesus takes this question and he spins it and goes, well, Well, you're just at, you're imposing the wrong projections on your question because marriage isn't even a world that, uh, an idea that fits in the world to come. And if I, I, for our listeners, we're going to kind of go right past this story. To be quite honest, I just am still learning about this. This is one story I just don't know. I don't have any great answers. I don't know exactly what the implications are of what Jesus is saying. Is she just saying this? Is she just saying that? Is she just saying, "Will I know my wife in the resurrection. Will I not know my wife? We won't be married. Like, I There are so many things I don't understand about what Jesus is having in this conversation, but Jesus is answering the Sadducees' trap with a trap of his own. He's saying, you're creating false parameters for your question that you're posing to me. Let me pose a question back to you. If we take your Torah, which is the books that they cling to, they cling to Torah and the Psalms. Those are the books of the Sadducees. That's the temple liturgy. In your own Torah, God calls himself a God of the living so how do you how do you exegete how do you apply what are the implications of that? And Jesus again worms his way in a brilliant way out of this trapping question. And I wish I could give us more details, and unfortunately I'm just un, ill equipped for this little small passage here. But at the end of the day, the crowds are again astonished that he's gotten out of yet another trap, yet another. Question this time from the Sadducees. So the first, the last one was from who, Brent? Uh, the Pharisees. And in partnership with the, the Herodians. Herodians. And now the Sadducees take their shot. Like everybody's trying to get this guy trapped in his own teaching and his own words and get him trapped in a corner. And Jesus keeps flipping the tables and trapping everybody else instead. So
0: let's go ahead and keep moving. And I, I guess I should point out as we go into this next section, the first section was the disciples of the Pharisees uh, with the Herodians. So now. After the Sadducees, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Okay. So the Pharisees, hearing that Jesus has in
1: fact silenced the Sadducees this time, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, Uh, A teacher of law approaches Jesus to ask him about the greatest commandment. Now, the way it reads in Matthew, it sounds as if the Pharisees are perplexed that Jesus was able to stump the Sadducees and wanted to do some follow-up. The question, which is the greatest commandment, is a very common one in Jesus's Jewish world. It's essentially asking the teacher what his interpretive lens is. Remember, we talked about the yoke. What is his yoke? What is his hermeneutic? What is his filter? How does he interpret the text? Great commandments, quote-unquote, were really a statement about what the Jews called a, a statement about weight. Kavod was the idea. Weight. Some laws carried more weight than others. If we can determine what the weightiest commandments are, the greatest commandments, it will help us know how to read our text. For instance, Rahab has a dilemma when the men of Jericho come looking for the spies. In such an instance, she is going to break a law. She is either not going to protect the foreigner and allow them to be murdered, or she's going to lie. Same instance in a modern sense, if we think about World War II and people hiding Jews in their attic when the Nazis came by. Same idea. The question is one of weight. If she chooses correctly, she ends up fulfilling the law. If she chooses incorrectly, what was the word we used, Brent? Uh, abolish it. Abolish it. She could abolish the Torah. Rahab chooses, intuitively I might add, she's a pagan prostitute after all, that protecting the foreigner carries more weight than abstaining from lies. She decides correctly, by the way, side note, and ends up in the hall of faith of Hebrews chapter 11. In Jesus' day, there was two dominant yokes or sets of interpretation that were being held. Remind me again of what they are, Brent?
0: Hello and Shammai.
1: Shammai declared that the two greatest commandments were what? Love the Lord your God and? And keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath, which was a longhand way of saying? Be obedient. Be obedient. Hillel, however, said, love God and? Love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Making the weightiest call a call to love. And Jesus agrees with one of them. Which one does he agree with, Brent? Hillel. Hillel. In Matthew, familiar. this familiar. Yes. In Matthew, this appears to answer the question and they move on. And that's it. That's kind of our passage. But in Luke, the question seems gets a lot more treatment. I personally believe we are not dealing with parallel stories in this instance, but we are dealing with the same question. So again, it's one of the questions that a rabbi would be asked all the time in Jesus' world. So we would expect multiple interactions. In Luke, the questioner asks Jesus about the greatest commandment and receives the same answer. But we're told this, behold,
0: a lawyer stood up, Actually, you have this passage, don't you? Brent, you have uh, Luke. Uh, what are we in? Yeah. Do you want me to finish the Matthew portion first?
1: Um, yes.
0: All right. So they ask him, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So that's the end of the portion in Matthew. Excellent. So we jump over to Luke 10. Okay. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? So in this version, Jesus turns the question back on the lawyer and says, what is your yoke?
1: Which is a brilliant rabbinical move, by the way. Rather than just answering it, he goes, he turns it around. Love it.
0: He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So this lawyer sides with who? With Hillel. Okay, excellent. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, I love that moment, because there's a moment there where the lawyer's like,
1: oh. Because the lawyer, we're told he stood up to do what? To test Jesus. To test Jesus. And He just let Jesus spin the thing around. Like, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus is, is essentially the question he's asking. Jesus says, well, how do you read it? He answers, and Jesus goes, good job. And now, and now he looks like an idiot. He just got the, the trap kind of like spun around and Jesus kind of sits there smirking at him, which, ex, which is going to explain the next verse. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So there's this moment of, I look stupid. So he wants to justify himself. So then he asks, who is my neighbor? Um. Jesus, like a brilliant rabbi, has just turned the entire situation back around onto the person asking the question. Since the man is a lawyer or a teacher in the law, or I think your translation said expert? Expert in the law, yeah. Okay. A person who studies Torah, Jesus asks him what his yoke was. The man replies and Jesus agrees. The whole situation would have been slightly humorous to those listening in on the conversation. So in order to justify himself, he asks about the neighbor. And justify himself he does. Because the debate surrounding who in my, who is my neighbor was a fierce one. He just asked a doozy of a question, but Jesus' response is even better. I have heard more than one teacher tell me that Jesus' parable surrounding the Good Samaritan is one of the most brilliant parables ever told in Jewish history. So in order to understand Jesus' teaching, we have to set the stage. Rabbis in the first century, let's just talk Peshat level before we even read the parable, Brent. Rabbis of the first century like to tell parables, we're familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, right? like almost uh, well, all of us sure. a story. Well, Maybe. there might be some listeners out there that haven't but but there are parables that use a common template um, actually did, somebody actually wrote me an email for another it's another teaching I was doing wanting to know where they could find more information on this I found some abstracts and some essays and some things that were behind some academic firewalls so it's, it's it is a little bit tricky to find some of these instances I would imagine I think uh, David Flusser wrote a book, Brent, about the parables, and I don't know if it's a scholarly book locked behind, but see if you can find it. I, I kind of have my doubts you're going to find it on Amazon, but if you can find D. Flusser's work on parables, I believe he's going to write about this.
0: That is a hunch, not one that I can speak with great certainty. We'll we'll do some searching and if we find it, it will be in the show notes. Excellent. If it's not in the
1: show notes, we did not. I have a feeling we're not going to, but we're gonna give it a we're gonna give it a good try. Um But there was a common template, and using this common template allowed them to keep some of the variables constant for the hearers and allowed them to wrestle with the content of the parable with less confusion, or should we say it allowed them to put the confusion where they wanted it to be in the Jewish parable. So one of the most common templates we have in written record is the template of a priest, a Levite, and a Pharisee. Whatever the content of the parable was, the characters were always the same, and we each played the same role. They each played the same role priest, Levite, Pharisee. Here's how it would go. The priest would always do it wrong because he's a priest. He's corrupt. He's corrupt. The Levite would also do it wrong, but for a different, he's not as corrupt as the priest, but he is bound up in this corrupt system. So he's going to be stuck. He's going to want to do the right thing, but he's going to be stuck doing the wrong thing. But the Pharisee is always going to do it correctly. In response to the neighbor question, Jesus begins a parable
0: following this typical template. Go ahead and read the parable, Brent. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have.
1: All right. So in response to the neighbor question, Jesus begins a parable with a typical template. A man is beat up and needs help. The priest refuses, the Levite refuses. It should be noted that they have good reasons to refuse, by the way. They're a part of temple worship and a lot of things that they have to keep in mind. But they are trying to be obedient to their role as priests who need to stay clean, And they're, they're but they are using a particular yoke. So they're using their yoke of priesthood. And at this point in the conversation, everyone knows what's coming next to save the day. Who is it going to be, Brent? Everybody knows the it. The Pharisee. It's going to be a Pharisee. But Jesus changes the story Along came a Samaritan, and you could have heard a pin drop. What we also don't understand is the background to the who is my neighbor debate. Uh, Another one of those great debates, Brent, who is my neighbor? If you would have asked Shammai, who is my neighbor? He would have responded, your fellow Jew. Do I have to love the Roman? Shammai would have responded, what, Brent, do you think? No. No. You don't have to love the Roman. They're not your neighbor. And the Torah, the Hebrew, is actually pretty easy to decipher In Leviticus, that Hebrew does not refer to outsiders. That Hebrew is your fellow Jew. So who is my neighbor? Your fellow Jew. Romans? No way. What about Samaritans, Brent? Uh, They are definitely not Absolutely not. You want to kick up a Roman 10 notches. Talk about a Samaritan. So Shemma would have been like, don't even ask that question, spitting on the ground, all kinds of stuff. Hillel. Hillel, who's my neighbor? He would have said your fellow Jew. That's what Leviticus tells us. Do I have to love the Roman? What do you think Hillel said? No. Think Hillel said no? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) His yoke was? It was love. Love. So actually, Hillel actually found a way to say, you got to love the Roman. Oh. Yeah. That was how committed to... Now, I don't think Hillel would have said, that's what Leviticus is speaking of, but Hillel would have taken the rest of Torah, the rest of Tanakh, and he would have said, yeah, to really love your neighbor means to love even the outsider, the Roman. Hillel, do I have to love a Samaritan? What do you think now, Brent?
0: Uh, Still probably not.
1: Uh, No way. Hillel would have said, no way do you love a Samaritan. So Shammai, do I love a Jew? Yes. Do I love a Roman? No. Do I love a a Samaritan? Absolutely not. Hillel, do I love a Jew? Yes. Do I love a Roman? Yes. Do I love a Samaritan? Absolutely not. In Jesus's story, he pushes the envelope far beyond what any listener would have been comfortable with. Jesus is clearly stating that even Hillel doesn't go far enough with his his love. Not only this, but the Samaritan isn't even the one receiving the love. He's the one being obedient to love. All of this, by the way, is a brilliant twist. Jesus is asked a question on the fly. And he responds by taking a common rabbinical template, tweaking it and changing it, and taking Hillel's yoke even farther than Hillel's taking it. Like, that's a brilliant move anyway. But all of this is what level, Brent? What level are we on? Peshat. This is all Peshat. So what about Remes? Did you know that Jesus wasn't the first one who came up with a story? It took place centuries before, and it's in your text. Second Chronicles chapter 28. In the story, the king of Samaria has defeated Judah. He is celebrating with his spoils and treating the prisoners poorly when the prophet comes to tell him that God is not happy. He handed the people of Judah over to him because of his discipline, but he is not happy. God is not happy with how they're being treated by the Samaritan, the Samarian king. The king thoughtfully repents. Go ahead and read the passage from 2 Chronicles 28.
0: But a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there and he went out to meet the army when it returned to Samaria. He said to them, Because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven. And now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves. But aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow Israelites you have taken as prisoners, for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. Then some of the leaders in Ephraim, Azariah, son of... Yehohanan, Barakiah, son of Meshlemeth, something. Yehizkiah, son of Shalom. You're doing a fantastic job, by the way. This is tough. This is tough. I'm a little out of practice with these uh, Hebrew words. Good old Shalom. And Amasa, son of Hadlai, confronted those who were arriving from the war. You must not bring those prisoners here, they said, or we will be guilty before the Lord. Do you intend to add to our sin and guilt? For our guilt is already great, and his fierce anger rests on Israel. So the soldiers gave up the prisoners and plunder in the presence of the officials and all the assembly. The men designated by name took the prisoners. And Listen from- to this. What did they do? They took the prisoners, which are from where, by the way? Judah. Yes. Okay, go ahead. Judah and Jerusalem? Well, or in, just yeah, Judah? And, yeah, you could say that, Judah and Jerusalem. Yep. Okay. Uh, The men designated by name took the prisoners, and from the plunder they clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, food and drink, and healing balm. All those who were weak, they put on donkeys. So they took them back to their fellow Israelites at Jericho, the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. The story has already been told. So on
1: the drop of a hat, Jesus is asked a question to be trapped. He uses a common rabbinical template. He spins it upside down. He has a provocative teaching that goes even further than Hillel's ever gone, and he does it all by quoting an obscure ramez and making his story a a story lifted right out of Second Chronicles twenty-eight. It is absolutely brilliant. This story has already happened. We already have a story in our Old Testament of Samarians or Samaritans or people from the north taking care of people from Judah at the city of Jericho. Like it's all in there. Like the whole, there's donkeys. All the pieces are in Second Chronicles 28. And I remember, Brent, working on this story for years about the drosh. I had the remez because Ray had taught it to me. I worked for years and years and years on a drosh, probably five or six years. So years and years and years, whatever, five years, six years. And then I had a student one day from Washington state, write me an email out of the blue. He was only in my class. His name's Greg. Shout out to Greg, Greg Dronin. He, he, he had only been in my class for weeks and then life called and he had to he got married and he had to stop coming to my class. Like he barely even had the tools, Brent Billings. And he writes me an email and he's found a chiasm in second chronicles twenty eight. Like I love this story because it just proves to all my listeners you can do this stuff. Like you don't have to be Marty, you don't have to be a rabbi, you don't have to be super trained. Here's Greg with just a few tools, and he answered a question I had been wrestling with for years. He found a chiasm in 2 Chronicles 28. So what we've done is in your presentation, we kind of drew out what I believe the chiasm is. Now, in continuing my study about this chiasm, um, I have one of my buddies, who I'm going to link one of his sermons at the end of this uh, episode today. We were wrestling with the center of this chiasm. Is the center of the chiasm what I have in your slide, or is the center of the chiasm potentially those three names that you had such a hard time reading. So if you'll read those again, just kidding, I won't make you do that. Um, But those three names are the three names of the Samaritans slash Samaritans. Those three names on either side of it, it talks about the Lord's fierce anger. There's two quotes about the Lord's fierce anger with their three names smashed in the middle. Either way, either way two brilliant centers to the chiasm. I'm not sure which one is right. If it's the three names, the drosh becomes, you've got to stand up and do the right thing. When the moment calls, you got to do the right thing. Because only if you do the right thing, are you an actual person that's loving your neighbor? Only the one who does something is a neighbor. Not the one that has their theology right, not the one that has all their orthodoxy, but the one who applies it to orthopraxy. Or the center of the chiasm is exactly the way I have it in the slide. And if you don't mind, read those first, uh, or there's a there's a paragraph there I had you be ready to read again. Brent, uh, give us those verses.
0: It's the one about Oded. But a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there, and he went out to meet the army when it returned to Samaria. He said to them, Because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven. And now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves. And here would be your sinner verse right here. Go ahead and read it. But aren't you also guilty of the sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow Israelites you have taken as prisoners, for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you.
1: All right. So aren't you too? You want to talk about the Samaritans, Jesus could be saying in his drash, Aren't you just as guilty as any Samaritan could ever be? And isn't that enough to make you see the fellow humanity in everyone so that you can see that everyone, is, Hillel's right, everyone is your neighbor. In fact, even the people you hate the absolute most, which is the Samaritan. So just some fantastic stuff there. What I'm going to do here is I'm not even going to give my concluding thoughts. Uh, my friend Reed, we've linked some CCF sermons already. Uh, my friend Reed Dent at Truman State um uh, CCF. He he preached a sermon. We're going to link it in the show notes. One of the best sermons I've ever heard. To be quite honest, um, hopefully he doesn't listen to this episode and hear that. He doesn't. He doesn't need any more praise than he already has. But it was just an amazing sermon. Uh, talked about his son. Just a moving, moving sermon. And we're not. If you listen to that sermon, you're going to realize Reed and I don't exactly sync up on all like the little historical nuances. The way I told it, the way he's going to tell it, some slight differences, and yet the same point. The same takeaway, just nailed it. Just so good. So really worth your time if you got a car ride. Plop that sermon in, listen to that. It's fantastic. But I think we have one more little piece of Matthew to wrap up chapter 22. Is that right,
0: Brent? And we can be done. We can call it. Yes. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Who's back on the offensive now, Brent? Jesus is.
1: (laughs) This is good. This is like sparring rabbinical judo going on here.
0: Earlier, the Pharisees send their disciples. Right. So Jesus is like, yeah, okay, whatever. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now... Yep. Now the Pharisees are like, oh, well, we better get into this ourselves. And Jesus is like, well, well I've got y'all here. Yeah, well, I've got y'all here. I've got a question for you. Go ahead. Uh, the son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And he just gets them because this is, everybody's looking for this Mashiach,
1: this character I don't even know if I would say it that way. Everybody's looking for this Mashiach. But this idea that there's going to come a ruler and a ruler has to be descended from who, Brent? From David. David. And David's a pretty big name. That's a big deal. Like he's a son of David. He's the son of David. And yet Jesus goes, well, if he's a son of David, David writes about him. You know he writes about him. You teach about how he writes about him in Psalm 110. So if he says, the Lord said to my Lord, if it's just his son, like he is going to be his son, but he... I think there's an insinuation here in Jesus's confrontation. He has to be more than just his son. Is that a claim to divinity? I'll let us all wrestle with that. But Jesus is certainly saying, we're not just talking about a descendant of David. We're talking about something. You're trying to trap me. And we're we're playing with something that David, when David speaks of it,
0: he says, the Lord says to my Lord. How does this even work? Go ahead and finish. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Boom. Ultimate mic drop. Jesus
1: out. Um, He is going to spend the rest of his week continuing to confront things, uh, get himself into trouble. Ultimately, will get himself executed um, as he confronts religious corruption. But... Just a great man. I just don't think we appreciate the sparring that goes on here, and the level of between Sadducees and religious leadership through the chief priests for, to to Pharisees and their devotion and their training in the text, and Jesus's responses and his way to dodge the traps, be true to good theology, call out people for orthopraxis. Like it, it, it is it is absolutely mind blowing. It's actually. I wrestle with it still today to get my head around everything we just talked about in this podcast today. There's a lot there. There's a lot going on. Jesus is a pretty brilliant Jewish teacher that I think we don't realize how good he is with his text and his Jewish hermeneutics. So good stuff.
0: Blockbuster episode. We're we're uh, getting we're into cooking the, right up forty the meat of yeah. Jesus's uh, ministry here. Yes, the good stuff. Everything comes to a point here. Uh, all right. Well, if you have any questions, any uh, anything you want to discuss with us, go to BayModDiscipleship.com. There's all sorts of ways to get in touch with us. Uh, join our Facebook group. Marty's always posting uh, prompts there, and and you can engage with other listeners and ask questions and do whatever. Uh, And also we've got the Baymont Messenger newsletter. So be sure to sign up for that as well, where we send out news to you. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.